This is episode number 541 with Kevin Hu, CEO of Metaplane. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest is the fun, well-spoken, and wildly intelligent entrepreneur, Kevin Hu. Kevin is co-founder and CEO of Metaplane, a Y Combinator-backed startup and platform that observes the quality of data flows, looks for abnormalities in the data, and then reports the issues to the right people. Prior to founding Metaplane, Kevin completed a PhD in machine learning and data science from MIT, one of the world's most illustrious technical universities. In this episode, Kevin details what data observability is and how it can help any platform or company with automated data flows to identify data quality issues immediately, as well as more quickly resolve the source of the issue. He talks about his PhD research on automating data science systems using machine learning. He talks about how he identified the problem his startup Metaplane would solve, the driving force behind his decision to launch a data science startup right out of his PhD, and his experience in Y Combinator accelerating the startup. He talks about the pros and cons of an academic career relative to the startup hustle. He talks about the surprising complexity of the software tools he uses daily as a CEO. And he fills us in on what he looks for in the data engineers that he hires. Today's episode does get a little technical here and there, but I think Kevin and I were pretty careful to define technical concepts when they came up. So today's episode should largely be appealing to anyone who's keen to learn a lot from a brilliant entrepreneur, especially if you'd like to found or grow a data science startup yourself. All right, you ready for this fun and absorbing episode? Let's go. Kevin, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's awesome to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? It's awesome to be here. I'm a longtime fan of the show and you're an incredible host. Uh, usually I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, mm. Today I'm actually in the south of France near Marseille. Oh, wow. First time here. Wow. So you're right on the coast? Close to the coast, a little bit inland, uh, but I'm sure we'll do some traveling around. Cool. And I guess, so we're recording in December and it'll still be winter when this episode comes out. Um, it's, it's warm down in the Southern, in Southern France at this time of year. Is it still, or or is it a little bit chillier? It is definitely warmer than Boston when I left, which isn't saying that much, (laughs) but let's just say that when I went on a hike earlier today, I had to take off my jacket, which is, you know, a good benchmark. You got lots of fun outdoors things to do there. We were just walking around the town and suddenly we come across like ancient Roman ruins right next to your cave. Uh, you keep walking, you see olive trees and it's like, what is this place? It really is as beautiful as people say. Yeah. It's a beautiful part of the world. All right. So Kevin, 
we could talk about Southern France all day, but I would love to talk about your startup, <laughs> Metaplane. So you co-founded it and you're the CEO. You founded it in 2019 and it's backed by some really great organizations. So you're a Y Combinator company. Uh, maybe later on, if we have time, we'll talk about that Y Combinator process. Um, you're also backed by Flybridge and the founders of a bunch of really big data startups like HubSpot and Clearbit. So clearly, in just a couple of years since you founded, you're doing a lot of things right. Um, the area that you're in is data observability. So you're building tools for anybody who's had data quality issues. Um, so you're looking to automatically monitor data. It could be data in data warehouses. It could be data that's flowing into business intelligence dashboards. I guess you're just monitoring data flows and then you're alerting people when things go wrong. Is that right? That was an excellent pitch. I cannot <laughs> do it better than that, but I can maybe tell you a bit of the story behind why this problem matters. Nice. Uh, the, the issue, well, imagine you're a software engineer. 10 years ago, if you're building an app, you might put it on, like put your Rails app on an EC2 box somewhere, put a heartbeat check to make sure that it's up, call it a day. But today, software engineers and DevOps engineers have amazing tools to understand the state of their infrastructure, to know how their database is performing, how their API endpoints are performing, how their servers are functioning. Mm -hmm. Incredible amounts of visibility, and we call this observability, because software engineers can understand at any point in time the state of their infrastructure. Unfortunately, data is about 10 years behind software, where if you go to a data team, right, data teams that I've worked on, and you ask honestly, is your data infrastructure up? Right? Is the data what you expect? That frequently we aren't as confident as we would like. And ironically, data teams don't have the metadata that they need to answer their own questions much of the time. So data observability tools, we strive to provide data teams as much visibility into the state of their data as software engineering teams have into the state of their software infrastructure. Interesting. So I, I hadn't clued in on that myself, but you just mentioned metadata there. And meta is in your company name, Metaplane. So I suspect there's a relationship. The relationship is a networking. You have a distinction between the data plane and the control plane. And we want to be the metadata plane. Ah, cool. Yeah. Um, I thought it might be something kind of like a metaverse, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when I, unfortunately when I first, not. When I first saw your company name, um, like that you were using meta in that kind of sense. Um, but now I see it's, it's associated with metadata, um, which meta is being used in that kind of metaverse sense of being something adjacent to. Um, so I think that that's the Greek or Latin basis of that kind of meta. So data is, you know, when you have um, an audio file, uh, the, the information that allows you to listen to the track is the data. And then the metadata is when was this track recorded and, um, you know, who recorded it. And so you're appending on lots of other metadata 
that allows us to have some confidence about that data? Exactly. And unfortunately, we couldn't get meta.com. I don't think anyone can get it at this point, <laughs> but <laughs> we, we were there with the name before Facebook was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's a great description of metadata where imagine if you're a data team at an e-commerce company, right? all of the other teams, the support teams, the you know, marketing teams, they have data about their customers, their orders, uh, and when they signed up. Uh, the data team wants to have metadata about, okay, this is how many tables exist. This is the dashboards that are being refreshed and the data that's being used by your end users. And that sort of metadata, believe it or not, is actually quite hard to come by. It's getting easier with tools like DPT and Snowflake, but before the recent generation of data tools, it's quite difficult. Cool. So I understand that there are some specific kinds of things that you look for in data, uh, it sounds like there's four of them specifically. Maybe you can run us through those to help us kind of understand, you know, when data is likely to be high quality or when there might be an issue. Because um, I imagine most of the time, it's probably some large percentage, 99 or 99.99% of data are actually fine. So um, you're, you're looking for factors. And so you have these kind of four uh, particular kinds of things that you're looking for in a data stream to say, hey, uh, that one is a standout. There's, there might be an aberration here and we should let somebody know. Totally. Going back to the idea of observability as your the amount of visibility you have into your data, we kind of flip it and say, what's the minimum amount of information about my data that I need to reconstruct it? As much fidelity as I can. And of course, ideally, you just have all of the data throughout all time stored in snapshots. Uh, but most of the time that isn't feasible. So the way we like to think of it is to boil your data systems down into four buckets. One of them is metrics, trying describing the internal characteristics like statistical distributions of your data. One of them is metadata, which describes more structural characteristics of your data, like what is the schema, the number of rows, the freshness. Um, then you, we have lineage where you describe how one piece of data depends on another piece of data. For example, if A, B, and C were used uh, as inputs to a der derivation for uh, F. And then logs, which describes interactions between systems, whether it's like a transformation pipeline or end users of the data with the data itself. So with the catchy acronym MMLL, uh, we try and describe, okay, internal and external characteristics and internal and external interactions with the data. Nice. Somehow I missed one of the M's as we went through. I got metrics, lineage, and logs, and those all made sense to me. What was the other M? Oh, metadata uh, itself? Metadata itself. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Cool. All right. So now I have an understanding of what data observability is and specifically Metaplane's approach. Do you have one or two examples that you can give us, use cases of where clients have used Metaplane and that's improved you know, their productivity or uh, their client's experience or something like that? Definitely. One of the beauties of working in data is the tools that you build are applicable across industries. A table is a table is a table. 
So some of our customers range in size from 10 person companies to 10,000 person companies and across verticals like healthcare, fintech, uh, e-commerce, B2B SaaS. And to give you one example, one of our customers, an e-commerce company around 1,000 people, uh, mm-hmm. due to the AWS outages uh, last week, had a major freshness issue where none of their tables and none of their reports were being updated. Mm. And Metaplane was actually the first to notify them, hey, uh, this data is uh, getting is not fresh and is getting more and more stale by the hour. So we have some anomaly detection on our end that tries to take trends and seasonality into account and to be almost like a first alert system for this team. That was like a, you know, all hands on deck code red issue. Another example is one of our B2B SaaS customers had an upstream engineering team change some of the instrumentation on their events and made it such that a lot of the product usage activity that they were sending to their sales and marketing systems were way skewed. This is very insidious because you will not be able to catch this unless you're staring at a table all day, which I hope right. no one is. Let Metaplane do that for you. Uh, but <laughs> but you know, no, we shot like the main. Yeah, no like one does. It's the kind of thing you're just, you, you're in a lot of situations, you know, until companies like yours have come around recently that allow us to have these systems flagging for us when there's an issue, that would be the only way. We kind of just trust that everything's in place and you don't find out until something goes really wrong downstream. And this was okay in the old world of data when data was used primarily for reporting for executives. But nowadays, data is used everywhere throughout organizations, whether it's AI, ML, and data science to powering product experience to even sending the data back to the customer. The stakes are so much higher. We make so many more data assets, whether they're their tables or downstream dashboards, that no one can audit everything. So with a ballooning number of assets, a ballooning risk, let machines do it for you. Come on. Cool. So I understand how you're observing data and then looking for anomalous events. That makes sense to me. And you have your four ways that you're looking for anomalous events. That makes sense to me. What do you do when you actually identify the issue? Do you, is it like an automated phone call or an email or do people kind of have their choice? We, the first thing we do is try to give our users as much information as possible as they need to prioritize. Not everything will be a code red issue or P0. So there's like priorities, right? Exactly. Like P0, P1. Got it, got it, got it. Exactly. So we try and have the downstream lineage to BI tools and other downstream tools to tell you, okay, this table is not fresh and it's being used by these five dashboards that are used by executives every day Mm -hmm. to give you a sense of the impact. And these are the upstream tables and sources to give you a sense of how you could possibly address the root cause. So you just try and get in front of a human and give them as much information as possible. We're looking into doing some more automated remediation, but that's a pretty hairy problem. 
Yeah, yeah, that sounds like it. That would be, I mean, it, even if you can crack it in a small number of frequently occurring situations, which I'm sure is where you're looking, uh, that would be a big win. Super cool. All right. So I love what you're doing, Kevin, with your company. Metaplane sounds like it can make a big impact on people's data businesses. I'd love to get a bit into your background before this. So you you founded this company in 2019, and we're going to get to your transition into founding it. But before we get to that, I want to discuss what you were doing first, which is a long string of evidently very successful academia, all at MIT, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So uh, you did a bachelor's degree there in physics, and then you liked it so much <laughs> in Boston <laughs> that you stayed around for a master's in data visualization and machine learning. And that wasn't enough. You hadn't gotten your fill of Red Sox games yet. And you stayed on for a PhD in machine learning. And your PhD research sounds super interesting. You presented it at top conferences like um, CHI, the Computer Human Interface Conference, which uh, I think you pronounce it in a much cooler way. Kai, <laughs> <laughs> like the Greek letter. Right, right, right. And um, of course, KDD, which is a big data discovery conference, a data mining conference. And it isn't just in academia that you made some ripples, because I understand that your research was featured in popular and very well-respected publications like The Economist, The New York Times, and Wired. So Kevin, first of all, why did you stay at MIT so long? And then... Uh, uh, I mean, actually, I, I can kind of answer your question for you because it is one of the most venerable institutions in the world for technical work. So I suppose if I had the opportunity to continue staying at MIT, I would too. Um, but um, yeah, so let us know a bit about that and what your experience was like, and then specifically what your PhD research was all about. You know, that makes one of us because I didn't plan on staying in, in academia. I didn't plan on going to grad school at all. Uh, for me, it was all about having the best teacher I could. And I mm. consider myself so lucky uh, to have been had the privilege of learning from some of the best at MIT, one of them being my PhD advisor, Cesar Hidalgo, who was originally my undergrad research advisor. Oh. Uh, and uh, he is really an incredible man uh, who invested in his students and trying in trying to cultivate them not only as technical researchers but researchers who can identify interesting problems and tell the story that's needed to really make their message resonate with other people uh, and i started like you mentioned in physics and this is actually how i got into the data world which going back you know back in time a little bit one of the most intimidating things about studying physics at MIT is that there are some very, very brilliant students, <laughs> I bet. right? You're like physics, math Olympiad, gold medalists, like on the log scale, they're way, way down there. But <laughs> everyone has to take an experimental lab course called JLab. And this lab is known as like the gauntlet course, where mm. it takes like 30, 40 hours a week and in that course, you have to replicate a Nobel Prize winning experiment every two weeks. 
right? one week you do the experiment very cool whether it's like you know counting muons or trying to approximate the speed of light uh it's a very fascinating course where yeah one week experiment one week analyzing the data and i realized at the time everyone does experiments at the same pace the people who had the hardest time in the course including some of those brilliant classmates that i had the people who had the hardest time were the people who weren't able to analyze the data right they didn't know matlab they didn't know statistical analysis they couldn't present the results in a you know meaningful way they ended up having to burn the all nighters so with that in with that happening and my sister <laughs> Getting her PhD in neuroscience at the time. She oh, said, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, she studied fish uh, cichlids at Stanford. Um, <laughs> no kidding, that's cool. Yeah, she she's awesome. She spent you know, five years collecting data, and at the very last year, she was like, "Kevin, can you help me analyze some of this?" <laughs> and I was like, "How insane is it that some of the brightest minds in our world are bottlenecked because they can't." analyze yeah data when they can otherwise articulate the problem yeah you know what kevin i had a really similar experience so doing my phd at oxford i decided right at the beginning to specialize in machine learning so i also like your sister i did a neuroscience phd and lots of my colleagues did very specific lab-based things like you know putting a recording electrode into a ferret's brain and monitoring its activity as it runs around or um, growing some kind of cell in a Petri dish. And I was like, well, those aren't super transferable skills. <laughs> uh, if I become an expert at machine learning, at you know managing large amounts of data, identifying patterns in data, I was like, even if I don't stay in academia and decide that I want to be growing cells in a Petri dish forever, um, this is going to be a yeah a highly transferable skill and exactly like what you're describing i was surrounded by people whom i looked up to so much these amazing researchers who would come by my desk and be like look at this plot like i've got more like you know this one is higher than the other one like i can see that but i don't know what statistical test i can use to prove that and so I got a lot of papers out of my PhD and a bunch of them, I did like a couple of days work <laughs> on but, the back of years of somebody's research, just like you're describing <laughs> with your sister, where they'd, you know, they spent years designing an experiment, collecting the data. And then at the end, they're like, ah, I think there's like this interaction between these two things. And like, I don't know how to model that. And I'm like, I can do that. Um, yeah. It sounds like you made the right call, both with machine learning as a subject uh, and the transferable technical skills. I'm wondering, like, why? Why do you think this, like, this skill set of being able to reason statistically and code is so rare amongst people who, like, obviously can do it, can obviously learn how? Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's just it's random. People, you get exposed to different things at different ages, and then you know maybe when your sister sees at the end of her neuroscience PhD that her little brother, I guess, right. can come along and solve you know, these problems and, and do it in such a short amount of time. She's like, oh, that's cool. I should spend a bit of time like learning about that. And so maybe like, maybe like you, 
I was extremely fortunate that even in high school, I had amazing computer science teachers and math teachers that I just loved what was happening in those classes. And I found myself kind of tinkering around with writing code on my own time outside of projects. And so just always kind of had this, um, it always just, it seemed natural to me and it seemed fun to me. And so throughout my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, I just, even though those were, you know, my, my bachelor's and my master's were in science disciplines and my PhD, the whole time I was self-teaching, like you mentioned MATLAB, you know, how could I be doing this? How could I be doing some analysis here with MATLAB as opposed to in an Excel spreadsheet um, or with SPSS, which seemed clunky? Um, yeah, I definitely see early exposure being a huge factor, if not only in programming, but also in, in math, for example, right? Different countries, different cultures having different proclivities towards math and part of it being, yeah, just getting the self-confidence sometime, right? If I can exactly. do this as a kid, I can do it as an adult, but if you've never done it as a kid, I'm going to do this for the first time when I'm 30. Like, I, it's tough. Um, yeah, something that I've said on the show before, but probably haven't said enough, is that I know there are listeners out there who are listening to this podcast because they're thinking about taking their first steps in data science. And parts of it, like maybe it's the math or maybe it's writing code, seem intimidating because you haven't done much of it before or any of it before. And maybe you don't know other people who you can see and kind of just learn off of and ask questions. And so Kevin and I are here to let you know that math stuff, coding stuff, it's just like learning anything else. Um, totally. And if you're listening to John and being curious and intentional with your learning, you've already done the hardest part. Yeah. And then it's, it's, we're at an amazing time. Things just keep getting easier and easier and easier to get started with learning these kinds of things. And Maybe something I don't mention enough is that I maintain a big list of resources at johncrone.com slash resources for getting started in data science. So lots of free uh, websites, uh, you know, books, all kinds of things just to get started with uh, in general with data science or with specific topics like machine learning or the deep learning branch of machine learning. Um, so yeah, if you're looking to get going, just find something that looks kind of fun. And there's lots of easy ways to, to get into this field. This is actually what I've been trying to work on for most of my research career. My, my grad school research was entirely around trying to make data analysis easier. And at the time when we started, um, to give you a, a very scoped down example, if you're given mm -hmm. a CSV, a spreadsheet, how can you recommend interesting quote-unquote analyses or visualizations uh, so that it like data analysis turns into a search and selection problem more than a specification problem. Because th it's the specification which is a huge barrier. And by that, I mean type down in code what you want to do as opposed to trying to reason either graphically or with natural language about what you want to do and then letting the machine kind of figure out the, you know, the codification of that for you. And first we started with rule-based systems, which only took us so far. 
then we, me and my colleagues, were some of the first to apply deep neural nets to large data sets, trying to recommend data visualizations. That project was called Visimel, or mm. to produce um, uh, like a type detection model. So if you get like a column of latitudes and longitudes, that we don't just say that it's a float, but we say, you know, given the distribution, we think that this is a, a latitude uh, or a zip code or a name, that sort of thing. Wow, that's cool. Wait, this is your PhD research? That was my PhD research. Wow, that's super cool. And I can see why it got picked up by popular outlets like The Economist, because that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, we are super, super lucky to, to work on these topics. Uh, and for my advisor to give me the, really the latitude and support to work on these topics as well. Amazing. And so, all right, so now I understand a bit more about your PhD research. So how did you go from that concept, this, uh, this kind of automation or streamlining suggestions for uh, data analysis or data visualization, typing, uh, how did you go from that to then the metaplane idea? And then, you know, talk about having the courage to do things. You know, we're talking about having the courage just to get into data science or to learn math or to, to learn some code. But you made the plunge from academia, from doing a PhD right into founding your own startup. So I realize I, I'm kind of asking two main questions there. So if we can put a pin in one or the other, but how did you... How did your focus switch from the PhD research you were doing to the data observability focus that Metaplane has today? And then the, I guess, yeah, and then the follow-up question about how making a startup about it that, you know, that, you know, did you have in the same kind of way that you and I were describing with, you know, as at an early age, having mentors to get us into math and programming, did you have the same kind of thing um, in startups? There's... There's a lot of talk in the software world about 10x engineers, you know, engineers who are just right. prodigiously more productive. And I don't know if that's entirely true, but I someone told me once that the easiest way to be a 10x engineer is to help 10 people be two times better. Mm. And I've always viewed myself as someone who I... I'm definitely not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I can help you sharpen your tool, right? And I can, uh, you know, if we can build tools that can help people like, you know, your colleagues, my sister, or really anyone in the world that works with data, which is many, many people nowadays do their jobs better, then that's some an impact that I'd be happy to have. And that's how I felt throughout my entire PhD, where a lot of it was impact-driven, how can I build tools that help more and more practitioners out there? And in you know, trying to commercialize the technology that we built, we did try and build a tool around automated data analysis. Uh, it had legs, but I think it was a little bit too early. But we very quickly discovered that the real barrier to working with data within most companies is not the data analysis piece. It is still there for sure, but it's actually making sure that the data is in a good shape. Yeah, that's cool. And that makes a lot of sense to me and I can totally see how that would happen. And this is one of those great examples of how how much value there is just in starting on something. So 
I think this happens a lot with startups and we hear this idea of startups pivoting after they've already been founded, where you go to tackle one problem, you think you've got this problem that you're going to be able to get clients for, and then you discover pretty early that what your clients really need is something else. Um, and so this is a, an example, yeah, of just, you know, if you want to have your own startup or, you know, be creating a product that can be getting consumers, then just start something. <laughs> don't, you know, you don't need to spend forever ideating um, because opportunities will present themselves kind of like it has for you. That is one of the huge differences between a PhD and startup life for me. I'm very curious mm -hmm. how it's been for you. Um, and also why YC has been helpful. Like, of course, there's a lot of overlap between the two, such as dealing with uncertainty over a grueling period of time with an uncertain outcome is something that isn't common between research and startups. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, besides that, there's a lot of differences. For example, not having an advisor in the startup world, like right. one person that can guide you along the whole way. Startups are also highly collaborative, whereas research, I would say for many, many people is actually quite solitary, right? But in startups, you have peers, co-founders, customers, you're talking with people a lot. And interestingly, as much as research is, of course, motivated by the truth, much of the time, the work that researchers work on is you know, driven a lot by peer approval. Oh, that's yeah. Ultimately... I mean, that, that's actually, that's something, going into a PhD, I was really excited about uncovering the truth. And one of the, one of the things for me personally, why I didn't end up staying in academia was that I realized that people's motivations were actually quite different. It is about... How many citations can you get on papers? What conference can you get accepted at? And that makes sense. I mean, because that that allows you to get bigger grants. It allows you to have a bigger impact. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how much I think from the outside for people, for listeners out there who haven't you know done a PhD, who haven't gotten deep into academia, uh, it's very easy to see it as kind of like this kind of pure investigation. But really, it's a lot of chasing. <laughs> Um, oh, like what's getting a lot of citations? What's an angle that I can spin on that to also get a lot of citations, which then kind of <laughs> indirectly ends up springing up some truth along the way. Yet another case where frequently the, the proxy you use to measure what really matters ends right. up becoming the goal. Right, right, <laughs> right? right, right. Exactly. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, that's a whole other conversation, another hour for us to talk about yeah, the impact of prestige-seeking mechanism status in mm -hmm. academia. Um, you know, ironically, startups, as much as there is a capitalist motive, there is also a source of truth, which is the customer need, right? Totally. It doesn't matter how charismatic you are, how beautiful the story is or the technology. Right. If it doesn't solve a customer problem, does it is not useful. And that's yeah. where, like you said, pivots are almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. And to kind of, to circle back on something, um, it is interesting now that you mention it, I haven't thought about it this way before, but the real time economy and being able to get sales is 
actually much more the truth, the reality, than a lot of the truth that you're uncovering with science. And I hadn't noticed that before. But with science, you can, those kinds of things that you mentioned, like charisma, presentation style, um, writing capability, can end up being a much bigger driver of success than the actual truth uncovering. And you can't get away with that in 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 commerce. Anyway, yeah. It, One good uh, proof point to you know, back of the argument is, you know, if you're a scientist and you won a Nobel Prize, that is an amazing predictor of future citations, regardless of how high quality those papers are. But in the startup world, if you exited one company and like you sold it or it went public, it's actually not that great of a predictor of the success of your second company. Mm, so there's, there's almost like you know this independence that goes on um, that at least removes the effect of the shine, let's just call it that. Right, right, right. So here's another example related to Nobel Prizes that I learned about recently. So uh, the Nobel Prize Committee, at some interval, they publish historical decisions. So it's nothing recent, but um, in the last year, for example, they published a bunch, of, a bunch of decisions that they made in the mid 20th century and earlier. And so the kinds of people that were on the Nobel Prize Committee were people like Albert Einstein, who were these extremely well-known themselves already Nobel Prize winners. And The Economist did a really interesting graphic in a short article on the, they have this like graphic detail that's always the last page. Well, the last page is always um, a, uh, um, an obituary, uh, but the page before that is um, what they call graphic detail and it's a really interesting graphic. And so they did a visual of Nobel Prize winners and how they might've been nominated for a decade, but they didn't win the Nobel Prize until someone like Albert Einstein, a really prominent person, came along and supported the nomination. And then all of a sudden, everybody changed their mind and everyone was like, yeah, 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 that, that person is really good. We should give him an award. That's so like a perfect example of how it isn't to do with the truth, but it's like, it's kind of just Albert Einstein's opinion, really, that's driving who's getting the Nobel Prizes. <laughs> you know, the, the brightest, most rational minds in the world, right? Subject to such herd behavior. It's really, that's, I got a look of that graphic. Yeah, it's good. I'll, I'll try to find it and, and put it in the show notes for everyone. Um, <laughs> that's that's going to be a fun one to try to figure out. In fairness to them, if Albert Einstein told me to do something, I would, if he told me to jump, I would ask how high. <laughs> so. I've got these anti-gravity, these anti, these relativity bending boots that I'd like <laughs> you to put on, Kevin. Uh, it's totally going to work. Why don't I'll you do, do it yourself, that. Albert? And <laughs> I'm too old. Just shoot me up, you know, beam <laughs> me up. Um, nice. All right. How did we get here? All right. So we were talking about uh, differences between academia and startups. You were talking about 10xing by being a 10x engineer by 2xing 10 people. Um, yeah, I guess we were, and, and we kind of identified, uh, the flip from what you were researching in your PhD and how that uncovered that there was this data observability, observability problem. Okay. But then let's go from there. So you've got the, you've identified there's this data observability issue. You hypothesize that people would be willing to pay for solutions. Then what, what did you do next? 
then we are in the stage that we are in now where we try to grow like crazy where but, but i mean so what about the i mean you had y combinator in there you had uh i mean there must have been some early it? proof of concept or something uh you know how did that unfold you didn't just jump to now being funded by these amazing people and having amazing clients there's a little bit in between the, surely the y combinator was an amazing experience i did skip a few steps there one of them was getting the support of amazing angel investors who I liken, if you played Warcraft or RuneScape, when you leave the tutorial, you're wearing like cloth clothing, you're level one. And then you encounter people who are level 99 and they drop an item that is useless to them, but is the most valuable thing in the world to you. And that's how I view the advice from some of our angels where they can dispense that all day, but it's so hard one. And it, if you're open-minded about it and it receives, it, it comes to you at the right time, it could really change the trajectory of your company. And Y Combinator was an example where you can get that kind of advice really distilled in one point in time. And they injected some urgency behind your company. So every week for three weeks, they ask, what is your KPI? How are you tracking against that? And then right. what is your... What's your goal next week? And one of the best parts I would say is related to your comment before about pivoting is hearing from the founders of successful startups like Airbnb and Segment, for example, about how they build their companies. And the answer is that there's no one right way. The Airbnb founders, the Coinbase founders, they had a vision and they executed on it straight through to the end from the garage days to IPO. Other founders like the Segment or Amplitude founders, when they went through Y Combinator, they were building completely different types of companies. I think they might have both been ed tech companies and now they're highly successful or public companies and Amplitude is public, Segment was bought for a very large sum. So I think in both cases, it's knowing the founders had an amazing taste for when they're onto something and then when they should put the pedal to the metal. For us, it was similar. We did pivot around quite a bit and it was painful for sure. It was very painful. We were lucky to have the support of amazing investors and colleagues uh, so that finally when we're solving a problem, which we feel has some meat to it, data observability, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we know that the product we have solves a real customer problem and, and we know how to reach those customers. And the goal is how do we bring data observability to 10,000 companies as fast as possible? Cool. That is amazing. So yeah, it sounds like Y Combinator was a hugely valuable experience. Um, so did you apply while you were still in your PhD um, or was that shortly after? I've applied four times. And no kidding. At first, I thought that was a lot, but I've talked to people who have applied upwards to 10 times. Right, right, uh, right. So it was yeah, shortly after the PhD. And finally, I think we were onto something and were committed full time to it and we were able to get in. Super cool. And so that was in the winter of 2020. So I guess everything was remote. 
we were the notorious COVID batch where <laughs> COVID was started. You know, everyone was in person at the time. Uh, at the time and all previous batches, you fly to the Bay Area right. and meet every week in uh, Mountain View. Uh, now, nowadays, it's fully remote. And COVID started getting very, very serious well, in the world before then, but in California, at least, around March. So everything was accelerated, whether it's the famous demo day where you demo to investors, the wrap-up of the program, it was sped up at the end. <laughs> so now it's it's still remote? Why All Y Combinator classes are still remote? I think so. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if they'll ever get back to it. This It's so interesting. It's just like the transition to remote working. There's obvious cons, but there's also really great pros. It's nice that you could be in Southern France and in Y Combinator. Um, but then the con, there's like the, you know, you're, you're not going to bump into people in the hallway and have that, uh, that, that conversation that could be really valuable, that first client or some new pivot idea um, that comes about organically. So there's pros and cons to, to being remote. I think with you know, many of us coming into remote work, we're pessimistic. I was. And I think it's another case of technological change where we, the downsides are very concrete, but the upsides are harder to imagine. Mm -hmm. And also to some extent, harder to quantify. I'm sure there are industries, even software to some extent, when it's like when you're a really big software company and everything's defined as like tickets, I guess you could, you could monitor. And in fact, definitely you could, I know you could, because I've seen COVID studies about this of people's productivity before COVID when everyone was in the office and then during COVID when everybody was remote. In a remote condition, a lot of different companies, you can measure this increase in improvement. But I think for managers like me, where we're doing data science R&D and some problems are tricky and they're legitimately tricky, but that also means that somebody could be like just kind of telling you that it's really tricky <laughs> and in practice, you know, they're just not trying that hard at it. And it's impossible for me to know what the situation is. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of managers in that kind of scenario in the world. And um, I think that, yeah, this this idea of remote working was scary because we were like, well, how am I going to keep an eye on how much people are working um, and really know? And at, at least what we've seen with with our company is people are delivering like never before. And it shows in um, how much we're able to produce in a given sprint, for example. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so it does work. And I'm sure absolutely why Combinator works remotely as well. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, we're both at high growth, early-ish stage startups. I think mm -hmm. something that I didn't expect to be a boon of remote work is the ability to hop on a call with anyone anytime. Right? Before to do customer discovery, take someone out for coffee, meet them at their office, suddenly half your day is gone. Exactly. But now, if you want to do early sales, you can do 16 calls in a day. I do not recommend it, but you could do 16 calls in a day, yeah. and that can really accelerate things. Yep, I've heard that from a number of other founders um, who yeah, have been able to do their Series A raise by Zoom and exactly what you just said, being able to get so many more meetings in a day. And even actually friends of mine who um, are at you know big banks like Goldman Sachs, who would be going out and you know they'd have to be flying around. And in, in their case, it was their job pre-pandemic to 
every day of the week be flying to wherever the investors are. And okay, yeah, they're based in New York, a bunch of investors are in New York. So maybe you get to spend two days a week in New York meeting with them. But then the rest of the time you're flying off to Miami and you're flying off to the West Coast. Um, and in those kinds of situations, in those kinds of jobs where you're, um, you're seeing how much support there is for a new a stock that's being issued, you might be doing two flights a day um, where you just you fly into the airport in Seattle, have a meeting, and then you fly to San Francisco for another meeting in the same day. And they don't have to do that anymore. They, which, you know, doesn't even touch on the environmental impact of taking those meetings. <laughs> but you know, just like, yeah, it's 2021, right? Even if it wasn't for COVID, it just, it isn't the, the rational thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I get that there is a face-to-face element, element in those high stakes, wear your best suit, you know, firm handshake meetings. But for everything else, like our conversation right now, would it be that much better in person? I'm not sure. It would be fun. Yeah. But this is also fun. Yeah, yeah. And I was reading an interesting article yesterday that opened my mind to this concept because I think I had this idea that things would go back to normal, meaning pre-pandemic, to the kinds of habits that we had then, the kinds of lives that we lived then. And this article opened my eyes to the reality that it's never going to be like it was before. That how we travel, how we work, it is going to be changed forever. And trends that were happening slowly, like remote working or shopping online, the pandemic accelerated those things. But now that I'm constantly ordering my groceries online, which I didn't do before, I'm not gonna go back to it. It's so much more convenient. (laughs) <laughs> totally it, it's really it's an irreversible process like you said mm-hmm. um and ordering yeah. groceries is such a good example where not forever but at least for the past couple of years it was always an option it's like why didn't we do it and i think it's one of those cases where what they say about startups is true where you need to have a solution that's 10 times better than the existing status quo the problem is that 10 times is actually very hard to get to, right? But you only need a slight improvement to, you know, make it so that it's painful to go back, right? Ordering groceries online is, I wouldn't say it's 10 times better than going in person. Maybe it's like two times better. But once you've tasted the two times, I'm not going back. Yeah, exactly. Um, amazing discussion. I'm really enjoying this. Um, so... Going back to your work, (laughs) um, your remote work now, um, I know from the bio that you sent me that you spend a lot of time in a SQL editor. So specifically, you wrote to me that um, outside of the SQL editor, you enjoy reading all kinds of fiction, biking around Boston and cooking. And that really caught me that you said that you spend a lot of time in a SQL editor. I was thinking to myself, I wonder how many CEOs... (laughs) (laughs) spend a lot of their day in a SQL editor. So um, tell us about why you end up using it so much and how it's useful to you as a CEO of a data company. SQL, in addition to English, is probably the most useful language that a data practitioner could acquire. I know that in the last decade, 
there have been many attempts to kill SQL, but SQL is still standing and it is still king. Uh, we use it all the time to sync our customers' databases and to query metadata from those databases, but we also use it on our own data. So I find myself with either Table Plus or Data Grip open all of the time. And honestly, a lot of the questions we have around sales or product analytics, I find it's much easier just to have a SQL editor open and being able to express the question in SQL. Cool. There are you know, no code tools, but if you know SQL, it, it pays off dividends. Yeah, so maybe this analogy isn't going to end up being right, and you can correct me where I'm wrong on it, but you often hear about CEOs being, you know, especially in a small company like yours where you're focused on growth right now, you're kind of the head of sales. And um, by having access to SQL and being able to look at your customer data really quickly, being able to look at data from your product really quickly on your own without depending on anybody else, that probably it's kind of like being like a sales engineer. Like you're this advanced sales practitioner that has access to sophisticated data tools in order to be able to do your job better than um, a salesperson that would have to rely on somebody else. So instead of being in a few minutes able to run a query, that salesperson who doesn't know how to do the, the SQL query has to rely on some analytics team or BI team to to report to them. And it might take days or or longer, and they might not get exactly what they were looking for. That's, um, I never thought of myself as a sales engineer, but I might just change my LinkedIn title to that because that is a, a perfect description of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it's, I think being able to make decisions based on business data, of course, most, most of the most important decisions won't have data to back it up, but at least many like micro decisions, I would say, do have data to back it up and being able to retrieve that quickly is a huge boon. Very cool. Are there any other tools that you uh, use on a daily basis? Um, my, yeah. My handy-dandy Jupyter notebook. Nice. I yeah. basically have localhost port 8888 open all the time. <laughs> I would, <laughs> you know how it is. Uh, anything that you cannot express in SQL is whip out. Python, got your pandas, NumPy, Altair. I love Altair for data visualization. Altair, I hadn't even heard of that. Yeah, it's um, it's a Python wrapper around a tool called Vega, which was produced by my one of my thesis readers and many colleagues at Stanford and University of Washington, where to make a visualization instead of being you know, procedural, like in D3 of do this and then do that and it is uh, it's a declarative approach so i say make me a bar chart with this variable on the x-axis this variable on the y-axis and i found it's a very organic and rapid approach to like exploring data sets visually amazing i i love when i learn about new hugely valuable tools like this for me uh, I'm sure it's valuable to listeners, but I get so much from asking these questions too. I can't wait to check this out later. Altair. Altair, like the, um, I believe it's a planet. I mean, sorry, not a planet. It's a star. Oh, cool. Oh, I see. Yeah, I was spelling it completely wrong. 
but we will definitely get that in the show notes. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I can't wait for people to learn about that. I can't wait to learn about that. So yeah, you're using Jupyter Notebooks for anything that you can't be doing in SQL and Altair for visualization in, in Python has proved particularly useful for you. I love that declarative way of creating plots. And then when you are using SQL, you love working with Table Plus and Data Grip. I'll be sure to get all of those in the show notes. Very cool. All right, so you can't be doing <laughs> all of the engineering, including the sales engineering on your own, Kevin. You have a growing company. I know that you're hiring software engineers and data engineers right now. What do you look for in the people that you hire? We look for intentionality. You know, we at the company and me personally try to do things in an intentional way. Uh, not to the point that you're paralyzed by analysis, but in, to the point of being thoughtful about things, whether it's things you produce or how you treat other people. We also look for people who prioritize actions over thoughts and words. Even though those are important, we're ultimately trying to be action-driven. And we just try and have fun at our company. right? We spend too many hours at work to not get some enjoyment out of it, at least to try, get, try to get some enjoyment out of it. I, I do miss the ping pong table of working in person. <laughs> when you're playing it, not when you're trying to focus. That's true. That is a good point. I'm, I might be the unruly distraction. I am, yeah, it turns out the reason why the data scientists on my team are so much more productive now that we're in a remote environment is they don't have to deal with me playing ping pong next to them all day. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to you know, destroy people with your, you know, with your spins. Uh, I wish I, I wish I was better. There's, there's not a huge amount of spinning, but I, I can reliably <laughs> hit, I can reliably hit the ball. Anyway, we don't need to get into that. Okay. So intentionality is uh, something you look for in people you hire. That's awesome. And also to be able to have a bit of fun. Um, that sounds like a really nice work environment. Um, so what do you look for? What's different that you look for in a data engineer versus a software engineer? That is a great question. Uh, and something that's changing all the time. Uh, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, we feel like Data is years, maybe a decade behind software. And the tools that software engineers have is significant, significantly better than the tools that data teams have. Right. Uh, but I believe that's also true when it comes to, unfortunately, like best practices and uh, just like kind of the culture around engineering, where software engineering has so many well-established best practices, whether it's Incidents response playbooks, test-driven development, CI/CD, uh, and only now are we starting to get some of that goodness into the data world. So I think that a lot of the technical aspects and non-technical practices are different between software and data engineering. That said, th they're equally important, and you know. Software might be a bit ahead in terms of its adoption across companies in the world, but very soon data will be used across verticals, across sides of the companies. We see that in our customers. And honestly, data is a production system, right? When data goes down, the company can sometimes grind to a halt. 
and we aren't mm-hmm. treating it that way today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really great explanation there. Nice that you tied the program back from the beginning and <laughs> uh, describing how tools are ahead for software engineers relative to data engineers. To, <laughs> That's my uh, job as a sales engineer. <laughs> nice. So I only have one last question for you, which is, do you have a book recommendation for us? I do, and I can't stop talking about this book. <laughs> Shout out to Matt Housley at Ternary Data for recommending it to us when we grabbed coffee in Boston. It's called Newton and the Counterfeiter. Hmm. So Isaac Newton, physicist, inventor of calculus, believe it or not, spent the last 30 years of his life not as a scientist, but as master of the royal mint. The same mint that, you know, creates coins. Uh, And I don't want to spoil too much, but (laughs) do you know why our coins have ridges along the sides? Well, I'm now going to just speculatively guess based on the title of this book that somehow that makes it harder to counterfeit. (laughs) It's highly related where you would, you know, without those ridges, it became much easier to shave off the edges of coins. Mm. Uh, that there are actually three kind of monetary crises going on at the time. Counterfeiting was a huge one. Um, another one was shaving off the edges of these coins. And yet another one was... What? Why would you shave the edge off a coin? Because back then they were made of silver and gold. So they were uh, actually valuable uh, shavings. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this um, yeah, the coins were actually made of silver, and believe it or not, the value of the metal of the coins was sometimes higher than the value of the coins themselves. So, Did you know that that's the case with pennies today? In most cases, that the really? copper in a penny is worth more than a penny, and it's one of the arguments why. So the so a lot of countries have gotten rid of pennies. Uh, my home country, Canada, you cannot get a penny anymore. Everything just, it's rounded to five cent increments. So if, you know, you calculate the tax and it comes out to 83 cents, it just rounds down to 80 cents. Um, Because creating pennies is a fool's errand. We're we're creating these assets that are are worth more than a penny. Um, And I think, I don't think they have, ugh, I could be wrong. I can't remember if they still have pennies in, in Europe. But I know that in the U.S. we still have pennies, and uh, there's a movement to get rid of them because of this. Wow, funny that that is news to me. Um, so I guess some of the struggles that Isaac Newton had to deal with uh, <laughs> still affect us today. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what I love about the book, you know, related to your audience, is when he came to the Royal Mint and tried to optimize the production processes because mm-hmm. England was running out of money. He took a very data-driven approach to the process. Cool. <laughs> Isaac Newton was a smart guy. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he certainly was. And it sounds like a really interesting book from an interesting part of his life that I didn't know anything about. You hear a lot about his early years at Cambridge and that infinite, infamous Apple story. Uh, but yeah, I didn't know anything about this in his later life. Um, he, uh, yeah. It sounds he, like a good instance of somebody who was quite brilliant and well-known in their day, who sounds like based on this job, they might've also been rewarded nicely for that. 
which sometimes you hear the opposite. Like people like Nikola Tesla, um, who like really struggled through despite being so brilliant. Anyway, you were about to say something and I spoke over you. Oh, no, um, you're exactly right. I think he did get a cut of the master of the mint, I believe did get a cut of the amount of money that was printed. So I think Isaac Newton, he wasn't that bad off as a professor, you know, the most famous professor at the time, but mm-hmm. he definitely died a rich man. There you go. I guess it's better than dying a poor man. So yeah, you don't get to enjoy your fame posthumously or your wealth posthumously. Um, all right. Awesome. That is a really cool book recommendation, Kevin. So you clearly are a brilliant guy. I have loved the way you have communicated so many interesting concepts so clearly today. I'm sure there are listeners uh, who feel the same way out there. How can they follow you or connect with you to hear your latest thoughts? You can find out more about Metaplane at metaplane.dev or twitter.com slash metaplane. For me, I'm slash Kevin Z-E-N-G-H-U, Kevin Zing Hu. There's a lot of Kevin Who's out there. you got to fit the middle name in. <laughs> um, and f- you can email me too at kevin at metaplane.dev. Uh, whether you're interested in data observability or you're looking to get into data science and have any questions there, I'm, I would just love to chat. It doesn't have to be about the company at all. Cool. Thank you for making that offer to our guests, and I hope some take advantage of it. Kevin, it's been so wonderful having you on the show, and I hope we'll get to catch up with you again on the show in the future. Such a pleasure. Take care, John. What a wonderful scholar and a gentleman Kevin is. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to meet him over the course of filming today's episode. In it, Kevin filled us in on the four ways Metaplane looks for abnormalities in data flows, namely metrics, metadata, lineage, and logs. He talked about the super cool MIT Junior Lab, or JLab for short, that requires physics majors to successfully replicate a Nobel Prize winning experiment every fortnight, and how being competent with data analysis makes tackling these experiments much easier. He talked about how we can be a legendary 10x engineer most easily by 2xing 10 other engineers, either with guidance or software solutions. He introduced us to the table plus and data grip tools he uses on a daily basis to make SQL queries as the sales engineer in chief, AKA CEO of his company, as well as the Altair declarative visualization library he uses in Python to more intuitively create graphics from data. And he also told us about the intentionality he looks for in the software engineers and data scientists he hires. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Kevin's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at www.superdatascience.com 541. That's superdatascience.com 541. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel, I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Finally, we've prepared something new for you. If you'd like to check out a detailed spreadsheet of all of the book recommendations we've had in the 500 plus episodes of this podcast, you can make your way to superdatascience.com books. 
Thanks to our podcast manager, Ivana, for dutifully maintaining this epic directory and now publishing it online for everyone. All right, thank you to Ivana herself, Mario, Jaime, JP, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another awesome episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.